0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number five, Exodus chapter four. Well, let's continue our study of Exodus. As we move on today into Exodus chapter four, and last time we met, we were in the midst of the burning bush theophany. And I say theophany all right, because indeed that kind of direct interaction between God and a man by which God manifests himself in some visible or audible way is rare in the Bible. In fact, the last recorded biblical theophany before Moses happened with Jacob five centuries earlier. Okay. Now, although our modern Bibles are structured in such a way that we just ended one chapter, chapter 3, and are about to begin the next, that's not actually the way the scriptures were written. The first verse of chapter 4 is just a continuation of the last verse of chapter 3, and so we're still in the midst of the conversation between God and Moses in the land of Midian at the site of the burning bush. So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to read all the chapter. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Moshe replied, but I'm certain they won't believe me and they won't listen to what I say because they'll say, Adonai didn't appear to you. And Adonai answered, with, answered him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake. And Moses recoiled from it. And then Adonai said to Moses, put your hand out and take it by the tail. And he reached out with his hand and he took hold of it and it became a staff in his hand. This is so that they will believe that Adonai, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak and the God of Yaakov, has appeared to you. Furthermore, Adonai said to him, now put your hand inside of your coat. And He put his hand into his coat and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, now put your hand back into your coat. And he put his hand back in his coat. And when he took it out, it was as healthy as the rest of his body. If they won't believe you or heed the evidence of the first sign, they'll be convinced by the second. But if they aren't persuaded even by both of these signs and still won't listen to what you say, then I want you to take some water from the river and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will turn into blood. On the dry land. And Moses said to Adonai, Oh Adonai, I'm a terrible speaker. I've always been. I have, I'm no better now. Even after you've spoken to your servant. I mean, my words come slowly. My, my tongue moves slowly. And Adonai answered him, Who gives a person a mouth? Who makes a person dumb or deaf, keen-sighted or blind? Isn't it I, Adonai? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and will teach you what to say. But he replied, Please, Lord, send somebody else, anybody you want. At this, Adonai's anger blazed up against Moses, and he said, Don't you have a brother, Aaron the Levi? I know that he's a good speaker. In fact, here he is now, coming out to meet you, and he'll be happy to see you. You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his, teaching you both what to do. Thus he will be your spokesman to the people, and in effect for you he will be your mouth, and for him you will be like God. Now take this staff in your hand, because you're going to need it to perform miracle, perform the signs. Moses left. He returned to Yitro, his father-in-law, and said to him, I beg you to let me go and return to my kinsmen in Egypt to see if they're still alive. And Yitro said to Moses, Go in peace. And Adonai said to Moses in Midian, Go on back to Egypt, because all the men who wanted to kill you were dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, started out for Egypt, and Moses took God's staff in his hand. And Adonai said to Moshe, when you get back to Egypt, make sure that you do before Pharaoh every one of the wonders I've enabled you to do. Nevertheless, I'm going to make him hard hearted and he will refuse to let the people go. Then you're to tell Pharaoh, Adonai says, Israel is my firstborn son. I have told you to let my son go in order to worship me, but you've refused to let him go. Well, then. I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, Adonai met Moshe and would have killed him. Had not Zipporah taken a flint stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. She threw it at his feet saying, what a bloody bridegroom you are for me. But then God let Moses be. She added a bloody bridegroom because of the circumcision. And Adonai said to Aaron, now go into the desert to meet Moses. He went, met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told him everything Adonai had said in sending him, including all the signs he had ordered him to perform. Then Moshe and Aharon went and gathered together all the leaders of the people of Israel. And Aharon said everything Adonai told Moshe, who then performed the signs for the people to see, the people believed. And when they heard that Adonai had remembered the people of Israel and seen how they were oppressed, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Well, in verse one, we see Moses' reluctance. The usual mode of a potential prophet of God. Reluctant. Alright, or perhaps downright fearful. And this starts to push to the fore. All right. And if we look closely, we see that Moses flat out didn't believe God. Okay. Because in chapter 3, verse 18, God told Moses unequivocally that the elders and people would pay attention to Moses. Now Moses turns right around and says to God, in essence, no, they won't. So in his great mercy, God begins to give Moses the thing he needed a series of proofs. The Bible typically calls them signs right, of God's ability to carry out whatever it is that he ordains. Now, what we're about to witness in chapter 4 is something never before done. God gives Moses the power to bring about miracles. Okay, This ability to wield such extraordinary Heavenly power had not been given to any man before it was given to Moses at this moment in history. And yet we must understand that this power is not Moses. It is God working through Moses. Moses did not become a godly magician. Rather, this is the same mysterious stuff that we all struggle to understand about the faithful believer today. Whatever power we do have is not our power. Nor is it of ourselves, nor does it come by our minds or our flesh. It's God in us. As such, whatever we do with such power must first be done strictly by his will. And second, by means of the power of His spirit, that thing we call the Holy Spirit. The first sign God put forth for Moses um, had to do with Moses' staff. You know, it was but a stick, a shepherd's staff used in his vocation as a tender of flocks. But God was going to transform the purpose of both Moses and his staff Instead of shepherding sheep, Moses was about to lead Israel. Now, what are we to make of God turning Moses' staff from a piece of dead and dried up wood into a snake and then back again? Well, there have been many analogies and allegories put forth to explain this meeting and its meaning rather, and it's hard to know for sure which is right, which is on the right track, if any of them. But what we can know with assurance is that it is no coincidence that the serpent that that staff was turned into was the official Egyptian symbol for royal power. It was the Egyptian symbol for authority, both religious and civil. Pharaohs usually wore the golden serpent on their heads. The snake represented the patron cobra cobra goddess of uh, lower Egypt. So somewhere in the midst of God showing Moses the tremendous supernatural ability that could turn a dead, dried-out piece of wood vegetation into a live animal and back again at his command, Moses, as a former prince of Egypt must have instantly recognized the symbolism of that serpent. Okay? For Moses was indeed going to, with God's power, overcome Egypt, whose very symbol was a serpent. Okay, And that old serpent, Satan himself, who guided Egypt, was also going to be overthrown. Okay, A simple shepherd was going to grab that serpent, Egypt, by its tail and shake it. Till God's people were let go. The second sign is a little more straightforward to my way of thinking. The clean hand that was inserted into Moses' garment became diseased. It became defiled. Okay. Then the defiled hand was inserted back into the garment and it became clean. Okay? This sign was as much directly related to Israel as was the first sign with the staff turning into a serpent directly related to Egypt. See, God's chosen people began pure, but then God allowed them by their own means to become impure. But God can redeem. He can take the most defiled person, the most defiled nation, and purify them. When Moses removed his hand that first time, the skin disease that instantly consumed his hand was not leprosy like the Bible I read from said, or like most of you say, it was not leprosy. The Hebrew word here for this affliction is tzara'at, tzara'at all right? and it is nowhere as serious as leprosy. Okay, We're not precisely sure What the disease was in medical terms. In fact, it was probably a range of diseases because later on we're going to get we're going to get um, some definitions of it, and we'll find that it was different things. Okay, but the Hebrews considered it not only ugly and contagious, but as an outward sign of the infected person's inward spiritual condition. Okay, in other words, a person with Zara'at was seen as under a condition of discipline or curse from God. Okay. Therefore, anyone defiled with Zara'at was removed from the presence of the other people. Moses' diseased hand represented Israel's inward spiritual condition in God's eyes. Okay. And just as important, God then removed that ought from Moses' hand. That is, he was able to and going to purify Israel from all their defilement. Well, the third and last sign, as seen in verse 9, was God showing his power over the worthless Egyptian gods. The Nile, the Nile River was life in Egypt in a very real way. In fact, the Nile itself was a god in the Egyptian religion. And when Moses would take water from the Nile and pour it on the desert sand, it would turn into blood. You know, since Adam and Eve, God has made it clear that blood was all important in his divine plan. Okay. That is why blood is the basis of God's sacrificial system. The Hebrews well understood stood this by turning the waters of the Nile into blood God was showing his complete mastery over the mystery Babylon religious system of Egypt. Now this coming battle of God, of the God of Israel against the non-Gods of Egypt is quite interesting and, and thought-provoking. Now we have the benefit of knowing that there is but one God and he's the God of everything. Okay. But in those ancient times, it was considered the common knowledge that there were not only was many gods, but that they were regional, or rather there, there were regional and national gods, and they operated within well-defined territories. Okay, When they went to war, they took with them god idols and those gods priests and whole that in this way their gods could have influence in a foreign territory. Okay, So Egypt had their gods, and their gods' realm, their sphere of authority, generally speaking, was limited to Egypt, the Egyptian people, and then all the matters that concerned Egypt. That was a principle of all the mystery Babylon religions that existed then, and every society ever unearthed and studied from that era generally believed the same way. So, for instance, up in Canaan, the various Canaanite cities and nations would each have their own set of gods that generally only dealt with that particular city and that city's people, their territory, all the issues involved. And from time to time, as one nation or people would come up against another, then the gods that represented those nations theoretically also battled amongst themselves. And it was believed that according to whichever nation won the battle, the gods of that nation were therefore more powerful and clever than the gods of the vanquished nation. Sometimes the defeated nation would naturally adopt the gods of the victorious nation because it was believed that those gods must be stronger than their own gods, so why not have the better gods? All right. Now, this idea of multiple gods did not get immediately cleansed from the thinking of the Israelites. Okay. We'll talk more about this from time to time as the situation arises, but for now, it's important to understand that when we see references in the early parts of the Old Testament referring to Yehovah as the God above all gods... That's exactly what it meant to the people of that day. To us, we just kind of take that biblical statement, God above all gods, and we turn it into a statement of grandeur. okay? Or we allegorize it a bit and say that it means that God Almighty is more important than anything else in our lives, our money, our family, our jobs, and that anything we might make is equally necessary in our lives As God in itself becomes a God. And while all that's true, good words, that was not what it meant to the early Hebrews. To them, this was quite literal. Now, in a few chapters, in Exodus 20, we're going to get into the Ten Commandments. And of course, the first thing that God instructs in those Ten Commandments is, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that was not a quaint statement with a symbolic meaning. The Hebrews, Israel, absolutely believed there were other gods. The whole world had other gods, hundreds of them. Shoot, everybody knew that from the time they were children. I mean, for Israel, it was bad enough that their chief god, the El, from where we get El Shaddai, El Elyon, El then the names of places and people like Bethel, Daniel, Immanuel, and scores and scores of biblical names incorporating the title El. God didn't allow Israel any other gods. Because the sheer number of gods that a nation possessed indicated that nation's wealth and power. So Israel with but Yehovah was considered by other nations of that era and early in their own development, by their own estimation, God-poor. Since they only had one. I mean, frankly, the idea that a people would have only one God was preposterous. So don't think Israel was even thrilled with all this. I mean, I tell you this so that you can put yourself into the minds of those ancient Israelites as well as the Egyptians in this upcoming battle between Moses and Pharaoh. And this so that you can understand the context of Exodus and the Torah as concerns the matter of identifying God and his attributes, very unique attributes. Also, so that we don't allegorize. Because we don't need to, all right? but that we understand that when the scriptural wording speaks in any way of God Almighty being above other gods, that is exactly what that writer thought and meant. Not because there were really other gods, but because the demons that often posed as deity to humans and the polluted and corrupted human thought that believed there were many gods had to be shown as what they are. False, frauds, deceivers. But before we kind of giggle at that whole notion and, and snicker and think how ignorant and primitive it was for the world and early Israel to think such absurd thoughts, you know, we need to remember That our personal walk with God is one that began right where we were when he found us. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And we were a mess. Well, I was. We didn't get cleaned up and then accept Christ. We didn't believe upon Jesus and then even become instantly perfected. You know, we Americans are very fortunate that thousands of years of God working with mankind has allowed us to live in a society that at least doesn't practice multiple God worship so that we had that to overcome. It took a long time and a whole series of hard, hard lessons for Israel to fully comprehend even the most basic concept That there is but one God. Not just one God for Israel and other gods for other peoples. One universal God for everyone and everything. This went against all human nature. They saw God, any God, on purely nationalistic and cultural terms. And Moses saw it that way too. And his first meeting with God in that burning bush... Episode didn't change his thinking on the matter right away. It only changed his thinking sufficiently for Moses to be God's instrument in securing Israel's release from Egypt. And in verse 10, when it seems that Moses' arguments to God have all been answered, he throws out one last-ditch effort to avoid this calling. And he says... I'm a man of no words. And oh yeah, one more thing, my words come slowly and my tongue moves slowly. Or most literally, what it says is, I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. Now what the exact nature of Moses' speech difficulty isn't clear. Tradition is that he had forgotten how to speak Hebrew very well. Others think that perhaps he was concerned that he no longer spoke Egyptian very well then he was going to have to face the king of Egypt. Be that as it may, we see then that God shows some anger with Moses. And and we need to take from this, you know, Moses really had very little idea who God was and what he was about and what his purposes were and just how omnipotent God is. And so God begins at the beginning. And he says to Moses this basic thing. Okay, Moses, who gave you that mouth? God knows way more about Moses' mouth than Moses ever will. Even more, God says, he will be there with Moses and tell him what to say. This is interesting. At this time in history, the Holy Spirit had not yet dwelt with man. That spiritual mystery... Of the Holy Spirit dwelling with men was 1400 years into the future. Okay, so what did it mean when God said, I will be there with you? How is God going to be there with Moses? In what form? All right, and just like you or I might wonder about how it was that God would be with us, so did Moses. Okay, well remember Last week, back in Exodus 3, verse 14, God answered Moses' question about his personal name by saying, Eye, Asher, Eye, which is most typically translated, I am that I am. But equally as correct, and perhaps even more so, is, I will be there, howsoever I will be there. In fact, that is much more literal than I am that I am. Now, several times now in Exodus, we're going to encounter Aye and Asher when God is telling Moses that he will be there with him in some situation or another. And here in 4.12, we encounter those same Hebrew words. God is going to Aye with Moses be there with Moses in some unexplained way. Okay, Whatever way he is there, however, we can be sure it's external to Moses. It's not like God being present with us today in the church age in the form of the Holy Spirit literally living within us. Okay, Many times in the Old Testament, we'll see that when the Holy Spirit is talked about in relation to men, it's that the Holy Spirit is upon a man, not within that man, like it is now. Upon is external. Within is internal. So let's not get too confident that we can completely sum up, through our rather simplistic doctrinal views, God's full range of manifestations. I mean, we know about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but at the very least, we've also heard about the angel of Jehovah, who is the one now talking to Moses, it says, "That's who was in the burning bush, it says the angel of Yehovah. And in a few chapters, we're going to be introduced to an, yet another manifestation of God called his Shekinah. We say Shekinah okay Shekinah, which doesn't fit too well with all these other categories of who God is either, all right. As God told Moses, I'll be there, howsoever I'll be there. All right, in other words, we couldn't comprehend it even if he explained it. And Moses replies, send somebody else. Wrong answer. God makes short work of this conversation by telling Moses that his older brother Aaron will speak for him. That Aaron will in effect be Moses' Mouth, And in fact, that God had already visited Aaron and he's on his way to meet Moses as they speak. Now, it shouldn't go unnoticed that God referred to Aaron as the Levite. I mean, after all, since this was Moses' own brother, I think Moses rather well knew that Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. So I, I think the thing to take from this is that right here we see God's intention to announce the tribe of Levi is going to be set apart as special. Okay, And in verse 15, the pecking order is established. God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to Aaron, Aaron speaks to the Pharaoh and the people. That's the deal. Now let's also not overlook those few little words in verse 16, in which God tells Moses, and for him, Aaron, You, Moses, shall be as a god. Whoa. God, for his own divine purposes, has decided that whatever Moses speaks shall carry with it the same authority as if God himself spoke it. Now, does that sound just a little bit like Yeshua the Messiah? Okay. I mentioned sometime earlier that while the Jews venerate Moses above all except God, the church sees him as pretty much just another Bible character. Okay. God sure seemed to see Moses as special. Right? As he was given the power to work miracles, the position of speaking as God, oh, what an incredible responsibility. No wonder he didn't want it. Well, that's the end of the dialogue now between Moses and and God. And apparently it's become a settled matter with Moses. He knows he's not going to win this one. So he's determined now he's going to obey God. So he heads for home, back to Midian. And he obtains approval from his father-in-law, Yitro, to leave Midian and go to Egypt to fulfill God's command to confront Pharaoh. Now, this procedure of Moses... Asking permission of uh, Jethro was simply Middle Eastern courtesy, right? as Jethro was the head of the house in which Moses lived. Then Jehovah again speaks to Moses, days or weeks after the burning bush manifestation, and he tells Moses that all those guys back in Egypt who had sought to kill him as justice for Moses' murder of that Egyptian so many years ago, were now dead in other words it was safe for Moses to go back without fear of arrest and this tells us a couple of things first even though in a previous chapter we read that the Pharaoh who was in power when Moses committed the murder had died that in Moses' mind Egypt was still a danger to himself personally okay God who knows our thoughts decided he needed to comfort Moses in that regard second of all This experience with God in the burning bush was not the end of either God's communication or presence with Moses. God is step by step showing Moses this truth, and in the process, Moses' faith in God is going to grow. So Moses loads up his family, his wife and two sons, and they depart for Egypt. And again, God speaks to Moses, presumably rather early in the journey. He's preparing Moses, telling him what to expect, how he's to respond. And here in verse 21, we get a word from God that has troubled the believer to no end, that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let Israel go. I mean, at one point or another, many of us have probably wondered whether that was fair or not. I mean, if God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, then what chance did Pharaoh ever have to do the right thing? I I mean, did God actually decide beforehand that he was going to intervene and make Pharaoh virtually incapable of obeying God? I mean, does this mean that God hardens the hearts of certain people at his choice so that they'll do evil things? So that they will never be allowed to know God, never to be saved? Now, there's no way we're going to solve that mystery here tonight. right? Because there are ways of God that are so beyond us to contemplate that it's a hopeless, if not faithless, endeavor to pursue it. Right? Yet the scriptures themselves do give us some clues. And the first time we hear of God declaring his own power in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is right here in verse 21. The next time we will hear of it is in Exodus 7.3, just before the beginning of the ten plagues. Both times, it's a prophetic warning. Okay, That is, it's something that is a little bit future and for whatever reason God thinks Moses needs to know about it ahead of time. Apparently God wanted Moses to not be perplexed or discouraged when using the miracles right, with his staff failed to sway Pharaoh and then later during the first nine of the plagues Pharaoh still didn't fully give in. God was going to use this rebellious Pharaoh for his own purposes much of which involved showing both Israel and Egypt the worthlessness of those Egyptian gods and Yahweh's own limitless power. Now, if we dissect this deliverance narrative, we're going to notice that 20 times, exactly 20 times, the word hardened, is used to describe the condition of Pharaoh's heart. And it's no coincidence that ten times it refers to God being the author of that hardening, and the other ten is Pharaoh himself hardening his own heart. Now, as I prayed and studied about this, it occurred to me that I could not possibly explain the divine reasoning for why this Interaction with Pharaoh went the way it did. For one reason, I don't have the words, and the other is I don't know. But we can draw some practical lessons from this to apply to our lives. First of all, God will not always strive with man. Hear that. God will not always strive with man. There comes a time when we have hardened our own hearts sufficiently that our paths are locked in and our destruction at the time of judgment is assured. That was Pharaoh's situation. Second, it appears that for the already rebellious man, which Pharaoh was, God will sometimes intervene and do a further hardening himself upon that rebellious heart. At times, it's to use that rebellious individual who God pre-knows is determined to die resisting God's will and mercy for a purpose that will showcase God's glory and achieve a goal that furthers God's kingdom. At other times, a temporary hardening at God's hand might occur to actually bring that person to a point of repentance. I mean... As most of us have learned the hard way, change usually only occurs within us when the pain of our condition is finally so great all right, that we become truly open to listening to God. So it may be that God will actually harden a man's heart for a time. So, for that man's own eventual good. So well does... God knows, that he knows that point of pain and discomfort, if there is such a point for us, that we'll finally submit to God and be saved from eternal destruction. And third, it's that our continuing rebelliousness that contributes to our hearts hardening, you know, it's, it's not God's will for any man to perish. We're told this on a number of places. But that doesn't mean that the vast majority of humans won't perish eternally. We know from the Bible that only what is described as a remnant is going to remain steadfast to the faith and thereby have our eternal lives preserved. So step by tiny step each time we dismiss God's admonition to us. Each time we say not yet to his lordship our minds become increasingly resistant to God's spirit until little by little like that frog in the kettle almost unnoticed by us our rejection of God's spirit becomes complete and for this there is no remedy and there's no hope and there's no redemption. Like it says in Proverbs 29, he that hardens himself shall suddenly be destroyed, and for that there is no remedy. Well, Moses is now given further instructions on exactly what he's to say to Pharaoh. Clearly, Moses is to make it perfectly understood that he stands before Pharaoh not as a rebellious leader of Israel, but as a prophet for God. And God tells Moses to advise Pharaoh that Israel is so important to God that God views Israel as his own firstborn. And he wants his firstborn set free to serve him. Now, this custom of firstborn varied a little bit from society to society in ancient times, but in general it had the same meaning. Okay. The firstborn, always speaking of a male firstborn, was considered a child of special significance. Pharaoh would most certainly have understood that that's what Moses was saying to him. All through Genesis, we've seen the place of honor that goes to the firstborn. But there's something else to take note of. Being labeled as the firstborn indicates that there is to be a secondborn, and perhaps a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and more. In other words, the implication is that after the firstborn, others will follow. Remember that when Jacob passed over his firstborn son, Reuben, as the one who should have received the double portion blessing and the right to rule Israel upon Jacob's death, that the next in line was Simeon who Jacob also passed over with an explanation. And then Levi, the thirdborn, who was also passed over with an explanation until Jacob came to Judah, the fourthborn, and gave to him the firstborn rights of tribal leadership. The order of birth starting with the firstborn was critical. So who was to be the secondborn? Who would sometime later Become the new members to the family of God. It's what we now call the church. But in more detailed terms, it's really a way of referring to Gentiles. So in verse 23, when Yehovah goes on to say, Pharaoh, to Pharaoh, but you have refused to send him, meaning the firstborn of God, which is Israel, when you ref- refuse to send him free, so then I will kill your firstborn, understand that we have two things running together here. That is, Moses is to first explain that Israel is the firstborn of God, and only after Pharaoh refuses at some point Moses is to threaten him with the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn, the heir to the throne of Egypt. Well, the journey from Midian to Egypt begins. And we immediately encounter this strange story All right, in verses 24 to 26. Here we see Moses' wife, Zipporah, in a rather nasty mood. But just before that, we find that God apparently is none too pleased either. Now, until fairly recently, I took this meaning to be that God was threatening Moses... But why would God threaten to kill the man he's just appointed to be his mediator before Moses even got to first base in his assignment? Bottom line, I don't think the threat was aimed at Moses. It was aimed at his son. Apparently Moses' son, he had two sons at this time, and most scholars feel this thing here concerned the second. This son hadn't been circumcised yet. And the tradition of the early Israelite sages is that Moses knew full well he was supposed to circumcise his son, but Sapporah wouldn't let him do it. It was the man's, the father's duty to perform the circumcision of his own son. Even more, how could the great mediator, Moses, not follow God's instruction? To circumcise his own sons. I mean, anyway, we see that Moses was anything but a strong man. Okay, He was no born leader, not even of his own family. So how in the world was God going to use him to lead three million stiff-necked Israelites out of bondage? More evidence that it's never by our might, but by the Lord's, that all things are accomplished for good. What was, or who was, Zipporah mad at? What put her in this bad mood? Okay. Moses. Because he had chosen this God that demanded such a thing as circumcision. See, that was the thinking in those days. Because men weren't chosen by gods, gods were picked. Sometimes they were dumped. They were dumped in favor of other gods by men. Don't like your gods? Get a whole new batch. See, here we have a good lesson that ancient man perverted by that mystery Babylon religious system thought he was in control when it came to choosing whom and what to worship. Now, we're not going to dwell on this next point, but neither do I want you to miss it. There is an organic connection between circumcision and the Passover. And between circumcision and Passover and the death of Christ. In every case, those three cases, something has to die. There is an element of separation from God and blood central to the entire event. So, with that in mind, let me point out a strange use of a Hebrew word in verse 25 that always had the rabbis scratching their heads. Yet I think it's because it has messianic overtones. And it occurs where it says that Zipporah cut off her son's foreskin. Now, first notice that it was Zipporah who did the circumcision. But more importantly, the Hebrew word that was used in this instance for cut-off was karet. K-A-R-E-T, karet. Now, we've discussed this important Hebrew word before because its meaning is that a person who is cut off is to be separated from God's people and also he's to be separated permanently from God. That's what karet means. When an action of simple cutting, okay, like cutting your finger, cutting a rope, cutting a piece of meat, all right, uh, is discussed in Torah, there are several standard Hebrew words employed, such as natach, gazit, batar, or milah. In fact, the act of circumcision is called a berit milah, because it literally means to cut a covenant. And circumcision is part of required entry into the community of Hebrews. So why would that term, karet, be employed here? I mean, it's a seeming complete misuse of that term. When this is but referring to the rather usual action of cutting something. In this case, the cutting off of the foreskin. There's a wonderful and prophetic symbolism being employed here the idea of removing the male foreskin is that a piece of flesh part of the corrupted body must be removed separated and die in fact the usual Hebrew procedure is that the foreskin must literally be buried in the ground because it's dead When the New Testament speaks of dying to the flesh, term, term we've all heard, right, it's with the symbolism, catch this, of circumcision in mind. Dying to the flesh is with the symbolism of circumcision in mind. What dies of the flesh, in the case of circumcision, the male foreskin, in the case of Passover, was every person in Egypt who didn't bow to the will and offer redemption of God and in the case of Christ what died was his physical body plus all of these situations there was an element of karet cut off from God even Christ shouted out from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken why have you left me There was a moment when Jesus, the man, in his flesh was correct, spiritually cut off from God. And time, as time goes on, we're going to discuss more this principle of correct, but that'll do it for now. One other thing, we see in a later chapter of Exodus, 18 to be specific, we're going to see Jethro bringing his daughter Zipporah and her two sons out to meet Moses on his return trip from Egypt. So one could speculate fairly easily, I think, that just as Moses was hardly of great character at this point of his life, Zipporah wasn't much of a helpmate either. Okay, Moses probably sent her home about halfway to Egypt. All right, either as a direct result of this circumcision episode, which I suspect. Or something else. And verse 27 takes us back a few days or weeks to before Moses began his journey to Egypt. Like we were told earlier, Aaron, Moses' brother, was to play a key role in the coming showdown with Pharaoh. So God dispatched Aaron to Midian to meet, uh, uh, to meet Moses. And interestingly... Where they met was the mountain of God. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb in Midian. And there Aaron was filled in on the encounter Moses had with God in the burning bush at that very place and what their mission was to be. So the sequence is that Moses and his family leave for their journey to Egypt. The journey takes them back towards the mountain of God. At the mountain of God, Moses runs into Aaron, and then Aaron accompanies Moses from that point on the remainder of the trip from Midian to Egypt, about 175-200 mile journey. When they arrived in Egypt, they immediately gathered together all the elders, the Hebrew people's representatives, and Aaron spoke to the elders, and they then Moses presented all the signs right, that God had given to him, just as God had told him to do, and the people heard, and they saw, and they believed, and it says, and they fell down and worshipped for it. Okay, that'll do it for this week.